Hello and welcome to the EMG Girl podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and today I'm delighted to be sharing a discussion I recently had with Dr. Richard Kaczynski, Chief Medical Officer at AI Pharma. In this podcast, I catch up with Richard to explore his extensive career in the medical field, while also discussing his thoughts on the role of oral antivirals in tackling COVID-19 and what more the pharmaceutical industry can do to reduce rates of Ebola. It's a riveting conversation and I hope you enjoy it. How are you doing today, Richard? Very good, Mark. Thanks for having me. Brilliant to have you on today. Now, Dr. Richard Kaczynski is the Chief Medical Officer at AI Pharma and the co-founder of Guardian, the global unified platform for the rapid development and investigation of therapeutics for novel pandemics program, developed in collaboration with Imperial College London. He was also the Senior Medical Advisor to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he worked with the Coordinator General of the Ebola Response to combat and contain the Ebola outbreak. He also acted as the lead clinician on the anti-infectious disease team at the Tokyo Olympics earlier this year. We're very excited to have him on the show today to discuss his career and the role of antivirals in healthcare. So let's get started then. Richard, when did you first discover your passion for medicine and how has this passion fueled you throughout your academic and professional careers? First off, thanks again, Mark, for having me on the interview. Been looking forward to this for a while now. And I hate to start this on such a grim overcast, but you know, just to go back into the, the question of what started me off on the path to medicine. Um, personally, I lost my father to cancer when I was three years old. This left an immigrant mother to fend for her four children um, in the U.S. alone. And you know, we didn't have too much money growing up, but it was the people around us, my father's friends who happened to be in healthcare. These are the family practitioners. These are the dentists. These are the people who came together in our time of need to provide that sort of care free of charge. So that's really the passion for me moving forward, you know, to be able to pay forward and, and kind of give something back um, in a similar fashion to what I've received during my childhood. Right. No, no, thank you. And, and obviously hugely sad, I'm sure, but great in terms of how you've, I guess, turned that into a positive and, and helping people today. So on that, can you tell us a bit more about how the Guardian program was formed and, and what challenges it's seeking to tackle? Yeah, so the, the Guardian program stands for the Global Unified Platform for the Rapid Development and Investigation of Therapeutics for Novel Pandemics. Um, this is something that we co-established in collaboration with the Imperial College. It's still in a very tentative form. But what we plan on doing with this, especially during times of pandemic, is we're quickly realizing that it takes time to approve these drugs in a rapid format. And as each day passes, we're losing more lives. So just to give you a little more perspective on this, the average time that it takes from an FDA application to an approval of a drug is about 12 years. And the estimated average cost of taking that new drug from concept to the market exceeds about $1 billion. So simply put, when we're put into a position of a global pandemic, such as we are right now, we don't have time to wait 12 years. We've already lost more than 5 million lives globally. So the Guardian was established to try to connect researchers across the globe so we can pool our data together and submit to the FDA or other regulatory agencies in a timely fashion so that these regulatory agencies can make informed decisions in a rapid manner. So that's the underlying concept. How is it going so far? What challenges are you facing that need to be overcome? 
So far, I think what the you know COVID nineteen is serving as a is a very good practice run for us for this concept. It's still very much in its infantile stages. Um, we're testing it on a specific antiviral, and some of the challenges that we face are that it's very poorly funded. Um, we don't have the funding to move forward and really engage regulatory agencies or other universities at the pace and with the aggressiveness that we would love to engage these entities. But with that said, you know, as long as we can identify partners who are invested in the benefit of humanity um, and not just the, the financial aspects of new drug development, um, we can move this concept forward. And thank goodness, you know, we're now operating in five continents and we do have a great set of partners to actually get this going um, once we come together and pull together all this data. Great, and great to hear it moving forward. Um, you've referenced COVID-19 a few times so far. So how important is the role of oral antivirals in fighting COVID-19? And, and what work are you currently doing to improve their impact on patient outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think really the, the missing piece of the puzzle for our global fight against COVID-19 is, is really antiviral therapies. And we did have injectable antiviral therapies earlier on in the pandemic. But what we have to remember with the injectable formulations of antivirals is that they must be administered in a hospital setting. Now, that is a passive approach. Um, we're waiting for patients to reach that level of clinical severity that they must be admitted to the hospitals. What we want to do is we want to take the fight into the communities. We want to try to stomp this fire out when it's still a small fire. We want to stomp this out when the viral load is still manageable. And that's something that we haven't been doing. So just to put things into further perspective, here's what happens when we're actually engaging patients. Um, this is the from diagnosis to recovery. If a patient comes in with symptoms, they'll be visiting the clinic, they'll be tested. If they're negative, they go on home. But if they test positive, the current strategy differs between symptomatic patients and asymptomatic or mild patients. So for symptomatic patients, they'll be admitted to the hospital, They'll go through their treatments and hopefully they'll be discharged, but a certain portion of those patients will result in death. So the opposite side of that spectrum would be for patients who tested positive, but who were asymptomatic or who are currently only presenting with mild symptoms will be asked to go home or maybe go and isolate at a designated hotel facility. And if 10 days passes and the symptoms don't get worse, you're free to go home. But now, the, the strategy is fundamentally flawed for a certain segment of patients. It's a cookie cutter approach. And sometimes the patient profiles will not fit that standard profile. Case in point would be the patients who are over the age of 50, for example. These are patients that we know who have an inherently higher risk of not only hospitalization, but death. So if we're looking at patients who are between the age of 50 and 64, they have a 30 time higher risk of death um, when we compare against patients who are in their late teens or in their 20s. So when we tell patients who are either asymptomatic or mild, who have tested positive for COVID-19 to just go home, that could mean a death sentence in certain cases. And what we want to do is we want to try to prevent that. If you are currently in an asymptomatic state or a mild disease state, we want to keep you that way. And the end goal is to try to prevent not only deaths, or ICU admissions from occurring, but we wanna to try to keep patients out of the hospitals in general. Because remember, even during times of COVID-19, we're still burdened by the 
other cases that are out there that are non-COVID-19. These are the uh, myocardial infarctions, maybe a stroke, or maybe a motor vehicle accident. These are all issues that we have to cater to as emergency care physicians. Of course. And I guess moving beyond COVID, um, although it's hard, hard to do so these days, um, you, you've obviously been heavily involved in the tackling of Ebola. How effectively is the pharmaceutical industry tackling this virus? And is there any further action that they could be taking in your perspective? Right. As with any industry, I think the, the motivations for the pharmaceutical industries are, are primarily financially motivated. And, you know, they're a business, so that's, that's very understandable. So when we talk about diseases that don't have a significantly high volume of patients, a lot of times these infectious diseases or these types of illnesses are not prioritized. Um, with regard to Ebola virus disease, this is a, a highly deadly virus. The case fatality ratio is up there at around 67%. So that means two out of three patients will be dying if they contract this virus. We do have medications. Um, there was a great study that was published in the New England Journal back in December of 2019. And you know what's important to note is these are very promising results, but they're not conclusive yet. You know, the best medications that were included in that New England Journal study reduced mortality from 67% to about 29%. So that still means even with access to the best medications, one out of three patients will be dying from Ebola if they contract the virus and they develop the disease. So I think, you know, it's not just because I came from a, an impoverished background, but I think, you know, with drugs like this, it's important for us to look at the simple premise of drug repurposing. And we like drug repurposing so much because one, uh, when we're dealing with a new drug, we always have to balance uh, this new drug against two critical perspectives. One is safety and the other is efficacy. With repurposed drugs, we already have one key element to the puzzle, and this is safety. So the next stage is to just go in and, and test to see if the drug is effective or not. What we were trying to do with the oral antiviral that we're working with is we were trying to use this as a prophylactic capacity. So meaning if we have the frontline healthcare workers who are engaging Ebola virus patients day in and day out, coming into contact with the bodily fluids of infected patients. And let's say, for example, you're working a hard day in the tent, you're wearing your, your PPEs, it's hot, and you've been working for six hours and you're not thinking straight. You've just administered an IV to a patient and the needle that you use to stick the patient, you just happen to prick yourself. So then you have a choice. Do you either say, well, okay, I'm gonna wait out and pray to God um, over the next 21 days, which is the incubation period for the virus. I either pray to God and I pray that I don't develop Ebola virus disease, or I have this pocket full of antivirals that I could take that could potentially reduce the risk of me developing um, Ebola virus disease. It's a simple choice. And you know this is something that we were trying to offer to the boots on the ground for the Ebola virus disease management team in the DRC. Yeah, it sounds like something that effectively gives more tools to healthcare professionals on the ground. Right, absolutely, and it's cheap. And I think that's really important, especially when we're talking about um, low resource settings. So, you know, if I go into a region like DRC, Central Africa, um, et cetera, you know, and I go in there with one of the best medications out there that are horribly expensive, I might save that patient from Ebola virus disease. But down the road, I'm going to end up killing that patient or making his life miserable because I'm taking valuable resources away from his government to spend on these expensive drugs 
when I could be using a drug that has already been used in the past, that it has a very well-established safety profile. And to be quite frank, it, it's, it's cheap, you know, and, and cheap drugs, I think we discount them because we consider them as old and we always think that newer drugs are better. But this really isn't the case. I think that drug repurposing is a very important concept that we should always keep in the back of our minds moving forward with any of these novel or re-emerging diseases. Thank you. Absolutely um, fascinating and great to hear the work going on there. Moving onwards, so how were you approached to work for the anti-infectious disease team at the Tokyo Olympics? And what strategies did you put in place to ensure the events could go ahead was keeping everyone attending and participating safe? So um, with regard to the Olympics, this is more of a, it wasn't really the anti-infectious disease teams, although this was a very significant component of that, that operational background that we were charged with. Our team at the Olympics was basically an emergency care team, and we were providing um, emergency department care to certain individuals within the Olympics hierarchy. Um, I can't go into too much detail as in terms of who we were treating or, or you know, specifically what teams that we were assigned to, but that was the bulk of our capacity to treat patients immediately if they had presented with, let's say, um, acute symptoms indicative of myocardial infarction, or maybe they bumped their knee somewhere. And of course, within that, we were making sure that uh, we were very keen on monitoring any presence of uh, COVID-19-like symptoms in any of the participants. So within that, you know, we learned a lot. Uh, there's, a, there's a bubble that was established to keep Olympic participants from interacting uh, with the, the local population. And the bubble did hold up. There were 870 cases that were eventually linked to the Olympic Games. Um, that was announced by the Tokyo Organizing Committee. Among the Olympic athletes and the stakeholders, the PCR positivity rate was 0.1%. At the airport screening, it was 0.03% for routine screening tests conducted outside of the airport. And remember, more than 1 million tests were conducted for the Olympics. So I think in any measure, that really was a success. And what we were doing in terms of infectious disease management, as far as our team was concerned, was we were responsible for collecting the saliva samples from the participants that we were charged with the responsibility of. And we were taking that to, to different collection sites. And there were a lot of lessons that we learned. One thing, the bubble itself uh, was a little problematic as we did find that some parts of the bubble weren't busted. There was no burst of the bubble, but there was certainly leakage. And what I mean by that is some of the hotel facilities that the Olympic guests were staying at were also shared by non-Olympic guests. So as much as the strategy was to try to keep these participants away from the general public, there were some portions of that strategy that failed to live up to the hype, let's say. But again, um, there was no burst, certainly leakage, but uh, we ended up with a, a very successful case. I guess my question would be, you know, if you were to do that again tomorrow, would your kind of main takeaway be to focus on that, that leakage, as you called it, or, or otherwise, were you happy with everything else that was put in place? Absolutely. I think with the Olympics, they had very little time to, to plan this out. I think, you know, we were debating whether or not the Olympics were even going to happen only until about a few months before the Olympics happened. And remember, the state of emergency was actually in effect in Tokyo during the Olympics. So it was a pretty bad situation. But within that horrible situation, the Olympics committee did a pretty darn good job with containing the virus and the infection. Now, moving forward with what type of lessons we learned, um, there, there's actually a lot of lessons that we learned. I think one would be the strategy if we did want to establish that protection bubble 
we would have to make that a little more stringent um, and we would have to make sure that no participants um, outside of that mass gaming event would be able to share the same hotel venues as the participants of the Olympics. Um, in addition to that, the saliva collection process also led us to a number of issues. Again, we worked out a number of these issues, but some of these things were on the fly. We weren't instructed to do certain things, but you know, as the team on the ground, um, we just went beyond our capacity. So for one thing, the saliva collection was actually done by the individual. So the individual would just have their own collection vials. They would spit into it to a certain line. They would have to affix a barcode and that barcode would have to then be registered by that participant. But a lot of times the instructions weren't clear. So we encountered a number of cases where samples were being provided, but they weren't filled to the proper line, or maybe their barcodes were not affixed, or maybe, you know, there were certain cases where the barcodes were affixed, but the barcode itself wasn't properly registered on the electronic system. So again, I think information and properly informing the people on the ground and also the participants on, on what you want them to do exactly is very important. So that would be one of the major lessons that we learned. Definitely. And I'm sure all the participants and people involved would um, be more than happy to thank you for all this work that enabled the event to go ahead, because I know many other major international sporting events in Japan didn't this year. Is this something you're more broadly involved with in terms of the IOC, or was this kind of a, a very much a, a one-off thing for you? I think that was a one-off um, in general, but I did get a chance to present my findings at an infectious disease conference last month. Um, that was well received, and I've been asked to come on and discuss some of these experiences with the organizing committees of other mass gathering events moving forward. So I'm very happy to share my experiences and how we can improve mass gathering events and how we can improve the protection biosphere for participants in these events. Sounds hugely valuable. Last question from me today. So it's obviously been a, a hugely eventful year in life sciences, but I was wondering if you'd be able to pick out some of your industry and personal highlights so far. I think there's two really. I mean, you know, when it comes, this sounds incredibly cheesy and I apologize for this beforehand, but, you know, as an, as an emergency care physician, you know, it's, it brings me massive joy to be able to treat patients in that setting, whether it be the ICU or in general wards or in the ER, to be able to treat patients who come in with COVID and see them walk home and prevent deaths from occurring. You know, that's, that brings me the greatest joy as a physician. Um, but in terms of my personal highlights, I, you know, just being able to engage patients on a different level, meaning being able to be a part of the development process and the, you know, the, the process of getting a drug from concept to fruition to approval so we can treat more patients in the general public. This has been the greatest uh, achievement or one of the greatest milestones in my life, just to be able to get out of that ER setting um, instead of engaging patients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, now I'm able to engage patients theoretically on a one to million basis. If we can prove that the drug does exactly what it's designed to do, and if we can prove that the drug is safe, we've already confirmed through multiple channels and multiple studies that the drug has a very well-established safety profile um, where we do fall slightly short, although the data that we've acquired to date has been very promising, but uh, there's nothing out there that we would consider scientifically absolutely conclusive. That is just about ready to change this month with the release of data that is coming out of a trial called the Prosecco trial. So we're, we're very much looking forward to that. And I think um, with the release of this data, assuming that this data is positive, we should be able to engage more patients in the community setting, and hopefully we can prevent patients from hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and death. And we can do this all in a very economic fashion. 
And that is sadly all we have time for this week. Thank you, Richard, for joining us today to discuss the importance of antiviral medicines and developing strategies with speed during a crisis. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of The Gold Podcast. Thank you to Richard for taking the time to join us on the show. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Do make sure you subscribe so you don't miss our next podcast. And in the meantime, check out our other podcasts and articles over at www.emg-gold.com. Take care and see you next time.